Um, I hope you have a Bible. We're going to be looking at John 11 in just a few minutes. Uh, if you want to turn and uh, or mark there, we'll open up to that in just a minute and read uh, from a very familiar story. But um, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus and why it matters to you, why it should matter, why I hope it matters to you. Um, and, and maybe you're thinking, you know, Easter was two weeks ago, so why are we still talking about the resurrection? And, and you know, honestly, we kind of talk about it all the time, every week. Um, but uh, if you're new to all this, uh, and, and this is the kind of the reason we're talking about the resurrection um, is because it still matters, not just as in it still matters two weeks later, but as in it still matters 2,000 years later. And, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say, and this may sound like a preacher thing, so if, if coming out of the box this kind of makes you kind of unimpressed, that's okay. But I honestly believe this, or I wouldn't say it. Jesus' resurrection has reality-shifting implications for every Jesus follower. And I know reality-shifting just sounds kind of big and heavy and maybe too much for you know what you consider faith to be about, but I believe that. That His resurrection, the fact that a man died, came back to life on His own power, and, and what that means for us has reality-shifting, changing implications for every Jesus follower. And I hope you know that, and maybe we can help you get there today. The reason we believe this is pretty simple. Jesus rose again. After He rose again, He gathered His disciples together and told them that things were basically just getting started. His movement was just beginning. Uh, He told them that He wanted to take a few weeks to do some visiting around Galilee and Judea to assemble a team uh, that basically uh, would, would, would serve as kind of the next phase of his ministry where they would go and tell the whole world about what his resurrection means and why it matters to everybody, not even not just those that knew him in those three years of ministry. And, and, and we know this about Jesus, that he was born to die for the sins of the world. He was raised to usher his spirit into and throughout the whole world. And his original followers, they were going to be the instrumental, uh, instrumental in spreading the message and its power because, because they had seen it with their own eyes. And, and just to remind you, or just to catch you up, this is the text that kind of sparked our conversation last week from Luke 24, where Jesus told them before ascending to heaven, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus told them they would be clothed or adorned with or filled with, empowered by something from heaven, the presence of God himself that would come upon us. And, and, and from that point forward, all who believed in him and all who follow him would receive this same gift. And, and you know, gift really isn't the best word for the, the presence of God because it's not a gift for our disposal. Jesus talks about God's presence dwelling in and around us at all times. And the only proper response to say to that is, God, I'm at your bidding. I'm at your service for your glory. You know, the resurrection ushered in and allows for all that Jesus promised about himself to be made accessible to us in a very personal way. It brings the kingdom life to us. In him and only in him can we find true life only in Christ. Uh, Only in Christ is all that we could ever need, been prepared for, and given to us. Only through him can we enter into and live in God's kingdom. Knowing Him and feeding off of Him as He commanded we should is only possible through God's Spirit. And only because of the resurrection is this achievable for me and for you. 
This is how we come to know that He truly is the bread of life. He truly is the fountain of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door to eternal life. He is the good shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one accesses God apart from Jesus. The Apostle Paul put it this way, really capturing what salvation means to us personally when he said this to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul speaks of identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That in his death, our sins have been forgiven, erased. Sin has been defeated. And in His resurrection, His Spirit has been given to us. We were buried with Him and raised in the newness of life. And because of that, we, because of the resurrection, promise and power, we have hope for today, tomorrow, and forever. And we have the presence of God that will help us navigate through whatever life throws our way. We find promises and power for life, for death, and for eternity. And the best part of it is it's not just for today it's not just for tomorrow but there's hope forever and and we learned last week we began to learn the resurrection empowers us for a better response for today a better hope for tomorrow and a better place in forever and we've discovered that there's a small problem though I mean, for, under that kind of promise, right, that we've been buried with Christ, sin has been forgiven, erased, and defeated, that we've been filled with God's presence and power and all these implications that should be changing because of that. The problem is, and we've learned this, and many of us would confess this, some of us, most of us on any given day, we don't always live like, we're not living like we've been raised from the dead and given new life in Christ. The way we respond to today the way we deal with tomorrow whenever things aren't what we hope they would be, the way we look forward to or maybe don't look forward to eternity, even though we've been raised with Christ, we don't always live like we've been given a new life, a new perspective. And and we're not living like we were spiritually dead, but now we're spiritually alive. We're not living like we were under sin, but now we're saved from it. We're not living like we were condemned, but now we're justified. We were in shame, but now we're at peace. We were living with no hope, but now we have eternal hope. We were living like today's all we got, but now we can start living for eternity. What I'm trying to say is if you're saved and you're no longer in sin, you're not controlled by sin, defeated by sin, destined by sin, from the way that you live to how you suffer to how you die, from your potential to your destiny, we are not held back, blinded by sin anymore. When you face the enemy today, tomorrow, and eternity, he can't win, death can't win, and it won't win. When you question your purpose or your meaning, remember heaven is your future. You're already in the kingdom of God and you will take up residence there forever and ever. And the question is, are we living like that is true? Are we acting like and living like, investing like we're saved from hell and are going to heaven, saved by uh, grace from sin? Are you living like you've been given abundant life? Do you face hardships like a child of God ought to, with the confidence we should have. 
Now, we could spend a few months just assembling to talk about what the resurrection promises us for today. How we can be free from sin and free for God's service. We can talk about our callings, our anointing, our appointments for God's glory. Each and every day offers us so much. And it's often tempting. um, And as churches, we often cater to this idea of chasing after more and more. We can become so focused on being so holy or maybe trying to get as much as we can out of each day. But for every today that we want to make sure we have as much as we can and get as much as we can and do as much as we can. For every today, there's also a tomorrow. And isn't it true, even though you might have today figured out, tomorrow is still a different story. And even though you might have what you need today, tomorrow, you're not sure. And sometimes we're tempted to not think about tomorrow because often it distracts us. And it intimidates us and discourages us. And, and, and come on, we don't know what tomorrow holds. And sometimes that causes us to worry, doesn't it? And come on, we don't know about tomorrow. We don't worry about tomorrow because we're worried things might get too good for us, right? Nobody worries that we might get too rich tomorrow. Whoa, what am I going to do with all that money, right? You don't worry about tomorrow because you might become too famous. And oh, no, what am I going to do with all those cameras following after me, right? You don't worry about tomorrow because, you, because life might get so good you don't know if you can handle it. <laughs> we don't stress as to how we might handle and contain all the possible blessings that might come our way tomorrow. Come on. We worry about tomorrow because of what bad it might bring. Right? And, and isn't it funny that we assume that tomorrow's uncertainty is, equals a risk? Why is that? Why does the uncertainty of tomorrow worry us? Because it does, doesn't it? But why does the uncertainty of tomorrow? And I know why. And you know why. Because there's always a chance that things might go wrong. Right? That's just how the world works. And that's something that we've accepted, right? And some of us, we are professionals at thinking of all the possible ways that life might unravel, aren't we? I mean, you give me five minutes and I'll tell you a hundred ways things might blow up tomorrow because that's just how my mind works, right? And maybe you're wired like me and you, you think like that, right? That you don't just worry about some things, you worry about everything that tomorrow might mess up. And while some people with nice smiles and hair might try to convince you that things aren't going to go wrong tomorrow, and if you're living right or you believe right, things will never go wrong. I can't lie to you like that. I, I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring us the absolute worst. It may bring us poverty, pain, problems untold. Tomorrow may not even come for some of you or someone close to you. And I'm steering us in this direction because I want to know, and I think you want to know, what does the resurrection promise us about tomorrow? And are the resurrection's promises greater than tomorrow's worries or possible Problems. Now, I gotta be honest, we need to be honest with each other right here. This is where Christianity breaks down for some people. This is where faith becomes obsolete for some people, maybe for you. That you're introduced in resurrection power if and when it's accessible today, and as long as it safeguards against tomorrow, but if and when tomorrow tempts you with uncertainty, when trouble could be on the horizon, rather than facing tomorrow with hope, when, we, when we're told that, that, hey, you should be confident, you should have faith, we can get a little testy, can't we? And I might make you a little mad here, or, or, or you might th- say I'm misrepresenting you, but 
often we make a very odd choice. That when facing tomorrow's uncertainty, when worried about tomorrow, we throw our faith away. Isn't it true that we just completely jettison our faith? We eject from the faith seat. And rather than facing tomorrow with hope, we face, we choose to face it alone. And it makes no sense, does it? Tomorrow's uncertainty can make us pretty stubborn and it brings out our stubbornness. But I hear you. Christianity breaks down for so many here. For some of you, because the fact that tomorrow is uncertain, the fact that it may bring you sorrow, that just leaves a bad taste in your mouth when it comes to God, doesn't it? And maybe you didn't come to church to think about what might go wrong tomorrow. And I promise you this isn't every week's sermon. But it's important to talk about. And the age-old argument begins here. And we begin to ask ourselves, and maybe this is why you put the shields up when this kind of stuff comes up. And maybe this is what frustrates you about God and about faith. Because how can a good God allow bad things to happen or even threaten us? And maybe this is why you've just walked away from faith at times. Because how in the world can a good God threaten me or allow bad things to loom over me? And this question marks the end of faith for so many, and you can't reconcile the two. And maybe the, maybe the more tomorrows that come that bring sorrow, the more you wrestle with this question. But let me say this or ask this, especially to the one that struggles. If you've ever struggled with uncertainty, if you've ever wrestled with the fact that how could a good God ever let bad things happen, let me ask you this, and I'm not taking shots at anybody, but have you ever been... Have you ever been the sorrow for someone's tomorrow? As in, somebody was having a fine and dandy day and all of a sudden you show up. And you're not having a good day. And all of a sudden, unintentionally by you, unexpected for them, boom, and all of a sudden you bring sorrow and pain to somebody. And you didn't mean to. You just did. Have you ever been somebody's sorrow there tomorrow they thought life was fine and you messed up and it didn't just hurt you did it so I guess what I'm asking you've done some bad stuff haven't you come on we've all done some bad stuff we've affected other people whether you wanted to or not it's our nature and we often struggle with the bad out there but what about the bad in here where does it fit in and could it be the bad in here makes us oh so aware of the bad out there I think so. I mean, we wrestle with this idea that how can a good God allow an evil world to exist? We don't ever simultaneously wrestle with the fact that God allows us to exist, do we? You know, evil out there, you know, God's good, that's evil, so how can that work? But we, how, how, do, how do we persist? And I know this is so emotional, but for so many people, we cease to believe or trust in God because bad exists. And we are essentially saying, I don't believe in God because I exist. I don't believe God exists because I exist. And I know you switch, it's a struggle to internalize this. And it's easy to deflect, but I'm trying to help us see the bigger picture. Could it be that I am my own imposition to trust in God? Could it be that it's not the bad out there? But it's the bad in here. Tomorrow isn't a threat. Tomorrow isn't a risk. Even if evil comes against me, I am already against me in some ways. And here's where I want to enter back into your life 
and into the struggle if you're hung up on tomorrow being against you and ba- or bad in general being against you. The resurrection of Jesus promises us that God is for us. Can we at least agree on that? And I know that might not answer all the questions you've got and all, this, all the confusion that comes along with evil and brokenness and sin. But listen, if we can at least agree that God is for us because Jesus died for us. But here's something this is so big and maybe you needed to hear this and maybe this will, will break you free from some of those struggles you've had. Maybe thinking you're not good enough or thinking that God is against you. The promise of Jesus began and Jesus proved that God was for us, not by eliminating evil, but by coexisting with evil. He showed up on planet earth and dwelt among us and he didn't eliminate evil. He lived side by side with it. Right? God was made known through Jesus not by getting rid of the bad, but by coming and living beside the bad. Including us. And yet, Jesus would go on to die for sin, die to save us from evil, and set in motion the countdown to evil's extinction. And maybe you're wondering, why didn't He just get rid of it all all then? Why didn't He just say, hey, it's gone forever? And the answer to that is, because Jesus wants to spare us from judgment by separating us from evil, by saving us from sin. So He put off judgment so that it would not include and feature us. And if he were to do away with all evil, if tomorrow was never guaranteed to bring sorrow, there'd have to be a guarantee that we wouldn't be there because we carry that potential for and towards sin ourselves, don't we? And rather than eliminating evil, he chooses to wait and desires to save us in the meanwhile. This doesn't mean that Jesus is powerless against your sin, against evil, in the face of whatever tomorrow may bring. Remember, he lived alongside of evil. And demonstrated that there was hope in the face of whatever tomorrow brings. He showed so often, and on one particular episode especially, he modeled this truth and this hope for us in a powerful, eye-opening way. So I want to look at that occasion in John's Gospel where Jesus manufactures a tragic scenario. Really, he manipulates somebody's life to not only make it clear that he is the Messiah, but to teach us that we don't ever have to be afraid of what tomorrow may bring, that we can indeed have hope for tomorrow no matter what. And if you're struggling with faith, if you're all about what might benefit you today, but what might cost you or harm you tomorrow causes you to doubt and to step back, this message is for you. Jesus may not clear the horizon. He may not take away tomorrow's uncertainty. But our hope is that whatever you may be dealt tomorrow, whatever you find yourself, wherever you find yourself, our hope is that Jesus will be there with you. And that might not be the answer that you're looking for. But believe me, by the end of our time, I think we'll realize that's the answer that we need. John 11 is a story that I think we've all read before, but I hope that we not only can find ourselves in the story, but I hope that we can find this Jesus in our own stories. It begins kind of very, very simply. We're told that there was a certain man who is sick. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. So we're told that there's a man who is sick, and we're, we're told that he is the siblings of two very important people that were followers of Jesus, um, that were actively in and around Jesus' ministry. Meanwhile, the next verse tells us, uh, that he points out who Mary was, and it says in verse 3, that therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
Now, we were told by the early, in the earlier story that Jesus is camping out about two days or about a day from Bethany north of Jerusalem. So as the story begins, it's set up for us like this. An uncertain tomorrow looms over Lazarus, and Jesus is at least a day away. So Lazarus is sick, and he doesn't know what tomorrow might bring, and everyone that loves him doesn't know what tomorrow might bring, and Jesus is at least a day away. And we find out later, Lazarus dies the next day. Tomorrow brought death to Lazarus. Meanwhile, Jesus doesn't budge. And verse number 4 tells us, When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Now listen, this might not seem brand new to us, but this is a brand new parallel, a brand new reality for Jesus' generation. That sickness plus God can equal good. That sickness plus God can equal God's glory. I mean, this sickness, it speaks of nature, the world, the evil that it causes out of, our, out of our control, right? Not necessarily of our own doing. And Jesus identifies the threat that is all around us, that is closing in on someone He loves. Remember, it's somebody that He loves, someone that He's really good friends with. And Jesus says in response, The tomorrow that loomed over Lazarus, though it by nature threatened him, had a divine purpose and was for God's glory. Now it's easy to assume that the bad that looms over us is for our doom, isn't it? Because dark clouds don't usually mean sunshine in the forecast. For anyone's perspective, it would appear that nothing good is headed our way. Sickness for God's glory, that's unheard of. That is completely impossible. And John knows that as we read this, we might think, you know, is Jesus just trying to brush Lazarus off? I mean, is this just something a preacher says when he doesn't want to deal with it, right? You know, he doesn't have time for Lazarus, so he says, well, you know what? He won't die. He'll be okay. God's going to get glory out of this some way, somehow. Let me go back to my camping trip. I've been busy. But John has to remind us, in case you're wondering, does he really care about Lazarus? Verse 5, John tells us, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So don't think that what he said was just some flippant preacher talk. Jesus loved, he cared for, had a personal friendship with this family. So he wouldn't do anything that would, un, that would be unloving towards them. But that assurance is tested yet again in verse 6. So when he heard that he was sick, now this could have went a couple of different ways. Remember the little boy that was sick and his daddy came to Jesus all those miles away and said, listen, if you just speak the word, I believe it, right? And at the very minute that he spoke the word, boom, the boy's sick. The boy's healed, right? I mean, Jesus could have just said, hey, you know, snap my fingers. Lazarus, you're better. Gets a phone call. Really? At the very minute, can you believe it? Of course you can believe it. Look who I am, right? Woohoo, right? I mean, it could have worked a couple of different ways. He could have said, you know what, guys? Pack up the entourage. we got to get there quick. And you know what? I- I'm God, by the way. We can just teleport there, right? That's kind of cool. We can just show up in Bethany. But the Scripture says, when he heard that, he said, or verse 6, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days, knowing he was a whole day away travel-wise. So knowing that he's a day away of Lazarus, he chooses to stall for two days. And you know what that means? Whatever, let's go to the next slide. 
Whatever tomorrow brings for Lazarus is going to have at least two days to reign over him as Jesus remains absent. Of course, Bethany and his townspeople weren't the only ones worried about what tomorrow may hold. Verse 6 says that after this, he says to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. And if you read the chapter before, the last time they were in Judea, they pe- the people picked up rocks to throw at Jesus. So verse number 8, they say, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again? And also, when they throw rocks at you, sometimes they miss. And they hit us. And if they come at you with the bigger rocks this time, we might not get up. <laughs> so you, I know you can do that thing where you're, you know, you're in the middle of a crowd and boom, you're, you're, you're in the next town. But we can't do that. So, hey, we don't really want to go back to Bethany or back to Judea. And then Jesus does that Jesus thing. That, this is why I believe the Bible's inspired because you couldn't make this up. Jesus just completely talks over their head. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Well, yeah. Of course, 12 hours in the day. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Well, thank you, Jesus, for letting us know that we should travel during the day, right? But what does that mean and how does that help us? Here's what I think Jesus is telling them. While I am with you, the paths I am forging, these are opportunities that will illuminate you forever. No matter how dark the forecast may be for tomorrow, Jesus made a promise to His followers that as long as they had the light, they would know the way to go. John teased this out in his prologue. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not... It's working on it, but it hasn't overcome it yet. And spoiler alert, it's not going to. Jesus says, as long as you have this light, He heeded His followers to pay attention to see this template for their future because it could change the way they see the darkest of days, ways to respond to the worst of forecasts. If we shut this door because initially it doesn't make sense or it doesn't land with us, we just keep on stumbling until we have no hope whatsoever. And to know Jesus is to know the light of the world. He reiterated this over again, chapter after chapter. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The darkness will not overtake you. Telling us that to know Jesus is to have the light of the world. Darkness may surround you, but it cannot fill you, and it doesn't have to overwhelm you. Jesus promises to bring some sort, some measure of light to you. That doesn't mean the darkness is going to go away. It doesn't mean that we won't come up against death or its shadows won't appear to suffocate us at times. It just means the light will always shine through darkness, that you will always have hope. And the fact that Christ has risen from the dead reminds us that no matter what, no matter how grim or how dark it may get, it doesn't have to be the end. And I'd be lying to you to offer some false hope in and of this life alone. Paul himself said that would be a fantasy. But he promised us, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. That even when things get so dark on this side that we don't see a solution, if Christ only offered us hope here and now, we would be foolish to follow Him. 
we'll talk about forever next week, but when it comes to tomorrow and what you may be facing, you need assurance that somebody's going to be with you in your worst. Jesus shifts things back to Lazarus in verse number 11. And He says, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I might wake him up. And of course, the disciples, as dense as ever, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. I mean, we shouldn't really visit somebody that's sleeping because if he's sleeping, he's probably resting. That means he's getting better. So why don't we just stay? We don't want to get stoned, Jesus. Remember that? So why don't we just say a prayer for him here, send him a postcard. He doesn't really need to see us. And then Jesus figures he needs to be a little more blunt. Verse number 14, he says, Lazarus is dead. In case you couldn't read me the first time. Lazarus is dead. And what comes next is so hard to read, considering how hard it must have been for them to hear and how hard and insensitive it might come for us. Verse 15, I mean, I can't even believe he said this, but I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. What about his sake? He's dead. I'm glad for your sake that I was not there. What? That you may believe. Did you hear that? Jesus says, I'm glad I let him die for your sake. That you might have faith. For the sake of everybody who's ever waited on lab results that don't look good. For the sake of anyone who's ever sat in an ER room, an ICU room, a hospital room with somebody beside you that doesn't look well. For the sake of everybody who's ever had to pull up to a horrified accident site not knowing what to expect. For the sake of anyone who's ever hopelessly walked on campus under lockdown. For the sake of anybody who's ever stood by a grave having buried someone they loved. I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad I let Lazarus suffer. I let his family be filled with sorrow. He creates a brand new category. Shedding brand new light into the odyssey of good and evil. God and bad. Jesus rejoiced that darkness had overshadowed Bethany for the sake of the whole world. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, that's okay. Imagine how they must have felt. And Thomas, of course, not understanding what Jesus is saying, thinks, well, you know what? He's dead. You're going to die. And we're going to die. So let us go. We might die with everybody. (laughs) As honest as you could be, right? Meanwhile, they arrive in Bethany four days after Lazarus has been buried after he died. And And it's in these moments, those who hurt don't hold back. Those of you've hurt don't hold back, especially when face-to-face with someone that could have been there, especially when that somebody was Jesus. Verse number 20, he's approached by Martha. As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house because Mary wasn't going to talk to him because she had nothing good to say to him. But Martha had a peace of mind to give to Jesus. And she says to him, Lord, if you had been here... I mean, this isn't just the preacher that could have prayed and made everybody feel better. This is the guy that could heal people, right? This is the guy that could, I don't know, maybe raise the dead, but we haven't seen that yet. This is the guy that can do anything. And if he would have just came on time, we wouldn't have had to bury our brother. I mean, come on, Jesus. If you would have just been here, my brother would not have died. 
Tomorrow loomed and loomed. Darkness got heavier and thicker and we thought for sure Jesus is going to just show up in the nick of time and send all of this evil away. He healed stranger, strangers. Of course He'll heal His friend. He could have just spoken the Word. I mean, listen, it wasn't a question of whether they believed. They had faith. Right? They called him on the phone, right? Hey, get down here. Just say the word. Pray a prayer. Jesus, you can help us. We believe in you. They didn't lack faith. They didn't need faith. They had it. But the miracle didn't happen. And Jesus, you could have prevented this, but you didn't. Jesus, you could have kept this from happening. But it seems as if you wanted this to happen. As if you're taking ownership over it. Martha still had faith, but it didn't prevent her from having pain. And she asked the honest question, what gives? And she says in verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She was saying to listen, Jesus, I've heard you tell people they need to believe and need to have faith. It's not a question of whether I believe or not. I know who you are. I've seen you do this stuff. You could have helped my brother. And so many of us, we bail out at this point. This is so crucial, so critical, so pivotal. It's where God can actually bring us the most help. Verse 23, Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And, that, and she took that as just the preacher way of trying to tell somebody that, you know I, know, I know you lost somebody you love, but hey, we believe in heaven, don't we? And she responds with the polite, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection. I know there's a last day. Okay, Jesus, don't preach to me right now. I know there's a last day. I don't want to wait for the last day. Okay? I don't know when that's going to come. I don't want to wait for that. Jesus assures her He's not here to teach her something, though. He's here to show her something. Look at verse 25. He says, no, 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 Martha, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not making you some ethereal promise about 5,000, 10,000 years from now when everybody's going to be taken. I'm not talking about that. I am saying to you, I am the resurrection. Now, she didn't know what that meant. That didn't really do much for her. But the proof of who Jesus really is is revealed in when He shows up. And sometimes we think, well, why wouldn't He just prevented this from happening? Listen, honestly, that preventive, preventative care doesn't define Jesus. Jesus is defined in the chaos, in the conflict, in the confusion. And while it's tempting to believe and attempting to think that God would always show up and keep us from ever getting to a place of hurt and pain, we've already established that's the enemy's way of trying to isolate us. Jesus shows up in the middle of the pain to show that He's that kind of God, one who coexists alongside the worst, even when it's us. And when we're to blame... But Martha, Jesus grabs Martha by the hand and He says, I'm doing this so generations to come can know. I am the resurrection. I am your hope when everything is broken. He who believes in Me, though He may die, He shall live. You'll die, but you won't. You'll walk through a door and I'm not here to chart out the future. I'm just here to give you faith that can withstand the fire, not just put it out. 
In verse 26, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says, Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God who is to come into the world. In that moment, Martha sees Jesus for who he really is, the Messiah who wades into the mess so that there's always a light on. Jesus goes on to have a similar exchange with Mary, and then he finally arrives at the tomb in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who came with with her weeping, look at that, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he asked, where have you laid him? As he moves near the scene, as he approaches this scene that I think is really a picture of all of the pain and the sin of all eternity being condensed down to one scene, to one place, he nears the gaping wound in creation. He nears this mousestorm of sin where all evil is is just centered and wrecking havoc on creation. And as he gets near perfection and eternal life in a body, as he approaches death, a grave symbolizing everybody's pain and everybody's suffering, as he draws near, he begins to be deeply moved and greatly troubled. And here's what makes Jesus so unique and worth your attention. He enters into the emotions of the moment, of the scene, of all the scenes like this. He entered into the pain and He stands in solidarity with all who are broken and suffering and weeping. And in this moment, He allows Himself to experience what we all experience on a daily basis, what we all fear tomorrow may bring. He allows the darkness that looms over us. He steps into that darkness. He inches closer to the edge of creation, this grave that stands in for all of our graves, all of our worst moments, all of our hopeless scenarios. And this is so powerful. He just weeps. Jesus wept. As he looks at this grave that symbolizes all that went wrong in creation that he loved. He stood there allowing all the pain and the sorrow of all time piled up. It wasn't meant to be this way, but he wasn't about to walk away. And from the onlooker's point of view, they they say, see how he loved him. And many of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? I mean, maybe this was just beyond his limit. Maybe he could do so much, but he just couldn't stop this. I mean, if he could have saved Lazarus, he would have, right? But what if, what if Jesus bundled all of time into this one afternoon, all the brokenness, all the pain? What if God's pain as He observes, our pain as we experience, what if all of that was wrapped into one moment? What if this was the moment as He stands by the grave, weeping, broken by, and weeping for the world that He loves? What if this was the moment He wanted to show everybody who He really was and is? And again, groaning in himself, he came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone laid against it. And he said, take away the stone. And of course they say, well, that's a bad idea. It's not going to smell good. And he says, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Didn't I tell you this would end differently than you expected? Of course he did. But we didn't believe, did we? We never believe, do we? And then he says, in verse 41, he prays. He lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I know that you always hear me, but because the people who are standing by, I said this out loud, that they may believe that you sent me. God, I know that you know what's going on, and I know what's going on, but nobody else does. And now we can reframe good and evil forever. So no matter how dark it might get for people, they will know there's a light on, and I am that light. And we read verse 43, and it's just normal to us, isn't it? But it was brand new for them. He said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And he who had died, John wanted to make it clear, he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes because grave clothes are what dead people wear, right? So he who had died came out bound and with grave clothes. His face was wrapped up because you wrap dead people's faces up. John wants us to make it, wants to make it clear to us. He was dead and Jesus said, you're alive again. Loose him and let him go. And many of the Jews who had come to Mary seen, saw these things and believed. I bet they did. Right? That was why he did it. Seeing was believing. This spread so fast, so wide, everyone marveled at what they had just saw, which would prove to be for our sake so that we could know Jesus is the light of the world, so that we might always be able to see. God had come to dwell alongside evil, to ultimately eradicate it once and for all, yes, but to first release all those tied up in its chains. Some didn't believe. Some thought they didn't need. Some thought they needed to stop Him. Some thought He didn't offer enough. Why the confusion? Why the resistance? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. If that didn't stop Jesus, did it? God didn't eliminate evil. He placed it on Jesus. Because He so loved this evil world, we can be saved. Jesus didn't stop at weeping at this wound, at this hole in creation. God placed a cross over that hole and Jesus hung on that cross. Not just to identify with us, but to welcome all the pain and all the sorrow, all the sin that could ever and has ever caused pain. He welcomed it on Himself. He didn't just weep at the grave. He took Lazarus' place in the grave. He took our place, yet death could not hold Him. It was undone by Him. The sting, the pangs, the chains of death were eliminated. His resurrection is our proof and our victory. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for my God is with me. I thought a lot about this last week, last couple of weeks, and I can't get my mind off of this. The true marvel of our God isn't His swiftness or ability to banish evil, but His patience and willingness to dwell alongside it in order to redeem it. How pure His love must be to give to all only to receive 
some. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring pain or even death. But Jesus' resurrection promises me that I will not face or bear that pain alone. And even if I die, Jesus will be with me. Do you believe that? Have you placed your faith in Him? Could it be that that's what you're missing? The hope that you could can't find anywhere else? The hope that could change everything for you? And I believe you can receive that promise today. You can receive that resurrection, that power, that promise. After all, Jesus stared death eye to eye and He did not blink. Don't be fooled by impossible questions and miss the obvious and undeniable truth. Jesus comes near. He approaches us when we're unraveling to show us and remind us death has been swallowed up in victory. And by faith, we can share in this victory today. Tomorrow. Always. And forever.